All right, church, if you can go ahead and take a seat and settle in. We're going to be in uh, various places in Scripture today. If you'd like to open up to James chapter 1, that'll be the passage of Scripture that we're going to start with. Uh, it is Father's Day, and we are excited. If you are a father here today, excited for the work that God is doing in your life and through you, uh, it is a wonderful thing to be a father. I'm several times over blessed with children, and God has granted me with the, the great, great blessing of being able to, to have a, a lot of little ones to raise. And so you know if you've experienced that, if you've been around children, that you've helped to raise, you've experienced a great blessing of it. Some of you dads will probably be getting some pretty spectacular gifts when you get home from church, or maybe you already did. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm partial to tools. Boys, take some notes over there. But I've gotten some pretty cool things over the years for Father's Day. One year, my wife got me a tie that literally had the printed faces of my children on the tie, which was pretty cool, pretty cool. But um, as much as it feels good to be acknowledged and to, to get a, a gift for being a good dad, that shouldn't be our motivation. You know, Father's Day is a wonderful time to set apart each year to really focus on and be thankful for our dads. But our motivation for being a good father shouldn't be praise. It shouldn't be accolades or rewards or gifts. We should desire to be good fathers because the Lord, our God, is such a good father to us. We were not always children of God. We were created by him, but because of our sinful hearts, we were born rebellious against the Lord God in opposition to him. And the Lord has made a great effort to make us, our own, uh, make us belong to him, to make us his, his own through Jesus Christ, his son. And when Jesus died on the cross and when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he causes such a revolution within us that now we can be near to God in a personal way. He doesn't just wash our sin free, uh, away from our hearts so that we can avoid the penalty of death. He brings us into his family. He connects us to him eternally so that we can have a loving relationship with him. It is one thing to think about this God of mystery, this God who is so great and wonderful and big, but then to think that God has given us a way to know him personally, to talk with him, to draw near to him, even though he is holy and perfect and pure, is such a humbling truth. And this God of grace is a God who has been not just a Lord to us, not just a master to us, but also our Abba Father, a father who loves us and has affection towards us, a God who knows us and, and brings us into his family so that we can have a nearness to him. So, you know, I, I talk to guys from time to time and, and many of them struggle because they don't know what their calling in life is. They don't know what God has planned for them. They don't know whether they're supposed to serve this way or that way or what their job is supposed to be. Let me tell you this much. If there is a little boy or a little girl who looks up to you and calls you daddy, then God has revealed his calling in your life in large part because he has given you the calling of fatherhood. And this is a, a very high calling indeed. When you are put in the position to be a prime influencer in the life of one of these little children that are so dear and precious to God himself, then that should be a calling that you, you strive to do well and that should be something that you pour your heart and soul into to raise up your children in wisdom to give them an example of godly love and affection, to show them mercy, to help them to understand what to do when they fail and when they struggle and to help them to grow through those times of trial, to be an example of one who doesn't just go to church because he's checking off all the religious boxes, but to be an example to your kids of going to church because you love God and you want to praise your father and show him, show him the, uh, the honor and, and the, the, the glory that he deserves. So if you are a dad here today, you are serving God in a very high capacity, and we want to pray for you and acknowledge that, that the Lord is doing a great work in your life. So if you're a father or a stepfather, if you're a father-to-be, if you uh, have adopted a child, or if you have even acted as a surrogate father for someone, would you please stand right now so that we can applaud the Lord God and the work that he's doing in your lives? Would you please stand to your feet for just a moment? Friends, would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me as we pray for these guys and, and ask that the Lord would give them the strength that they need to do this task well. Father, I, I praise you for fatherhood. It is one of the greatest joys I've ever experienced to know that I, I can have an impact on the lives of little ones that you love. And I know that, that I share that feeling with many of the men in this room. And I pray, God, that as they tackle this difficult calling, this tough task, Lord, that each day they would seek you in prayer. Each day they would open your word and read of it so that they wouldn't be trying to do this on their own wisdom or on their own strength, God. I pray that you would give them direction, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit, 
So in the days when they're frustrated and they're ready to throw their hands up in the air, that they would remember that you have been so patient with us, that you have endured so much, that, that while we were yet sinners, you came and you died for us, that we might be near to you. So I pray, God, that you would give an abundance of patience, that you give a courage to speak the truth to, these, to the children of these men through their fathers, Lord, so that they would see an example of godly love in their lives and they might learn how to be fathers themselves one day. God, we praise you for our wives and the support they offer to us as we desire to be good fathers. This is definitely a team effort and we pray, God, for those whose hearts are heavy today because either their father uh, is no longer with us, Lord, or because their father might not have been a great example to them. Perhaps that relationship is not what they want it to be. I pray that you administer to them. Help us to remember that in all things, even when our earthly fathers fall short, that you, Lord God, are the father that will endure with us forever. And so we thank you for your guidance and your strength and the way that you protect and provide for your own. Help us to learn from your example. Help us to show the testimony of our lives to our children what a great God and Father you are. We pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, fathers. Well, dads, this sermon is not directly about fatherhood today. But as we study the biblical requirements of those who want to serve as elders and deacons in God's church, we're looking at the kinds of characteristics that make a, a, a truly godly man. And in order to become a godly father, you need to first learn to become a godly man. So pay special attention to each of these sermons on the requirements for godly leadership. And even if the Lord has not beckoned you to be one of the leaders that we're speaking about in the church, and has not beckoned you to be an overseer, a pastor, or a deacon, in some kind of official capacity, realize that as a father, you have been called to shepherd your own household well, to oversee their spiritual growth and development, and to serve them in a sacrificial way, just as the Lord God has sacrificed much so that we might know him and be near to him. The scripture has been making it clear to us that a man must be of strong reputation, both inside and outside of the church, if he hopes to serve as an elder or as a deacon. A man's reputation might be built in part upon the good name that he, is, that he has earned by his works, by the things that he has done in obedience to God. But the other side of the coin is true as well. A man may do fatal damage to his reputation and standing with those who are inside and outside of the church by engaging in sin. Sin can damage our reputation and can hurt our ability to be above reproach. To address that reality, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus 1, the Apostle Paul points out several negative characteristics that will jeopardize a man's reputation to the point where they can no longer be considered eligible to serve. These are disqualifying sins in the life of one who wants to be an elder or a deacon. So listed in your note sheets there are the qualities kind of put together in list form from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that we call disqualifying traits. These traits should warn us not to elect the man to office and if present in a currently serving pastor or deacon are cause for immediate correction or removal from service. So when we look at the particular role of overseer, elder, pastor, these are all synonymous terms, we see that this man must not be somebody who is violent, must not be arrogant, insubordinate to authority, must not be quarrelsome or quick-tempered. They must not be a drunkard or a lover of money. The list for deacons is similar, though there are some unique aspects. They are called to not be double-tongued, to not be addicted to much wine, to not be greedy for dishonest gain, and to not be slanderers, those who speak evil of someone when it isn't true in order to defame their character. And so as we work through these two lists, we're going to see a number of these disqualifying factors are closely related, so we're going to group some of them together. The man who is called to serve in a leadership capacity in God's church must not be violent, arrogant, or quick-tempered. And all of those things have to do with this important, important question. How does this man who desires to serve, how does this man handle conflict? One who's entrusted with a position of leadership in God's church will inevitably find themselves in the crosshairs of conflict. See, the church is made up of imperfect people and people don't always see eye to eye. Our perceptions are flawed. Even miscommunications and misunderstandings can cause massive amounts of friction between brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And the man who serves as a leader in God's church has got to be able to endure that heat and navigate through that friction to reach resolutions. People, even saved people, are sinners, aren't they? And will sin against one another. When Christ came to offer salvation to us, he did a massive work that cleansed us from wickedness and wiped away our debt of sin to the Father. But he chose in his wisdom to not take away our ability to sin yet. That is something we look forward to in glory. When Christ returns for his church or when our time here on earth is done, then our ability to sin will be done away with once and for all. But until that day, as we walk this world that is so polluted by sin, we too can fall into those patterns that used to define us before we belonged with Christ. And we as church members will from time to time sin against one another. The church, of course, will always be at odds with the sinful world around it. The things that we hold to be dear to our hearts, the things that we stand for, are often directly opposed to the values of the world. And so the people outside of the church will always have a degree of friction to the people inside of the church. And so long as we want to be a church that effectively reaches our community, we are praying that God would bring some of those people that do not honor him yet, that do not believe on Christ, to bring them in to be a part of what we're doing. We want to establish relationships with them. They want to, we want to make them feel comfortable so that they can come in here and hear the word preached and understand and explore the things of God. And while they are joining with us and attending church with us, then that outside tendency is going to affect the inside unity. So these are things we have to contend with as leaders in God's church. The way a leader responds to opposition and conflict, the way that he receives pushback and deals with this kind of friction will reveal a lot to us about the kind of heart he has and to what degree that man surrenders his heart to the true chief of the church, Jesus Christ. When we gather on the Lord's Day, we get to sing about how God is for us. We get to sing songs where we praise him for being our strong shelter, for being our champion and for doing battle on our behalf. But we've got to remember and never lose sight of the fact that before God was for us, he was against us. And we were against him. When God created mankind, he created mankind to worship him, to have fellowship with him, to enjoy him forever. But it wasn't long before sin infected the creation that God had made. And man and woman, the first to ever walk the world, committed treason against the God who had made them. Rather than love him as creator and father, they decided to treat him as enemy they decided for themselves what was good and wrong and ignored what God had said was right and what was, e what was evil. And by doing so, they set themselves up as enemies to God. And every human being born since that date, who's born with a sinful nature, has been an enemy to God to start their lives out. When I sin against God, it's not so much a difference of opinion between me and God. We don't just agree to part ways and go our separate paths when I disagree against God, I am setting myself up against his authority. I am saying, God, though you made me, though you rule this earth, I refuse to follow after your command. I'm gonna do things my way. I wanna be my own king. That is really what happens when we sin against God by breaking his rules. Because he gave us life and we owe him everything, to break his rules means that we rightfully deserve his wrath. We rightly deserve to be persecuted by him because he is the keeper of truth and justice and love. But praise be to the Lord, he's made a way to change all of that. But it only comes through his son, Jesus Christ. When we come to him with a radically surrendered heart and say, Jesus, I know that I am an enemy to God, but I don't want to be an enemy to God anymore. I want to be right with the Lord. I want my sin dealt with. I trust in you, Jesus Christ, and the power of the cross I believe that you can forgive my sins. I believe that you paid for them in full. That is radical surrender. I want you to imagine for a second two generals, each one commanding an army of formidable soldiers, and they have met in battle on the battlefield. And it doesn't take very long before the first general to begin to see that the other general's troops are better rested than his. They are better fed than his troops are. They are better led that general has come up with a better tactical plan. Before too long, his soldiers are starting to fall in droves. The battle is turning against him swiftly and he has a very important decision to make. 
Either he's going to fight to the bitter end and see every last one of his troops put to death. Or he's got to see things for how they really are. And he's got to seek a meeting with that opposing general so that he might ride in with a white flag waving in the air and offer to him surrender. This is a tremendously humbling decision. But in the case of the spiritual conflict between our sinful rebellion and God's unrelenting righteousness, it is not until we wave the white flag of surrender and give ourselves over to the authority of this God that we otherwise have opposed that we might be redeemed. And in being redeemed, we see, we realize that the battle he is fighting has been for our good all along. See, God is a champion for truth and love. And as long as we are on the side of rebelliousness and sinfulness, he must oppose us. It is not until Jesus Christ comes and washes our sin away and makes us pure that Jesus, that the Lord God can invite us in to be not just a part of his army, but a part of his eternal family. So he fights against us for our own good. And when we realize the weight of our sin and the fact that we need to be right with the Lord God if there is any hope for survival, until we see that and surrender ourselves to him, we cannot be a child of God. That humble ability to surrender to the Lord Jesus is essential to a right relationship with our maker. The man who is arrogant, the man who deals with conflict through violence, the man who leads with a quarrelsome heart and who is hardly ever able to yield or even listen to another person, in all likelihood, that person still struggles with the authority that God has in his life as well. So caution yourself against a man like that. Look and see what the scripture tells us about the dangers of letting our temper influence the way that we lead others. If you're in James chapter one, I wanna read to you verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Notice those words that are on the screen before you there or in your Bible in your lap. It says, let every person. So Brother James is not just giving us a, a narrow definition of the attitude of a leader. He's saying that all of us need to have temperance, the ability to take control of our anger and our frustrations. That's not just for elders and deacons. It should be especially important, though, for those who are leading the church because those who are leading the church are setting the example for others. They are setting the tempo of how that congregation of people will interact with one another. So, so long as that leader is leading with a temperate and self-controlled heart, he will be more able to direct them in a godly way. Notice here, if, righteousness of, if the righteousness of God is our aim and goal, then we cannot fool ourselves. We're not going to achieve that goal if we allow our anger to manifest itself before we can take our thoughts and words captive by our better judgments. James does not forbid anger here, does he? Rather, he tells us to be slow to anger. Divorcing yourself from your feelings entirely, that's not the goal. Instead, let's take the time to judge every one of our feelings against the word of God and the example of Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God. There is a time for righteous anger. And that even occasionally may lead to an appropriately violent reaction. We've seen this in the life of Jesus a handful of times, right? When Jesus enters into the temple and he sees men of, of unscrupulous nature taking advantage of those who are just coming to worship and give glory to God, and they're being ripped off by these money changers and these ones who are selling sacrifices at inflated costs. What does Jesus do? He goes and collects for himself a whip of, of branches. He goes and, and whips the people who are dishonoring his father's house. He turns over their tables, casts their money into the ground, because he is not going to put up with this disrespectful attitude and posture towards the house of his God. When Jesus is on the road and he is thinking about and, and his heart is heavy because Israel has time and time again rejected him as Messiah, he sees a fig tree coming up along the way 
and he's hungry. And so he goes up to that fig tree hoping to get a, a meal for himself or a snack for he and his disciples. But the fig tree is not bearing fruit, though it should. And so what does he do to that fig tree? He curses the fig tree. He does violence to it. It withers and it never produces fruit again. Why does Jesus do this? Because he wants to illustrate in a dramatic way that in order for us to be fruitful to the Lord God, we must have the Messiah. We must have a Savior who pays for our sins and intercedes for us so that we can come rightly before the Lord of, uh, Lord of Lords and King of Kings without experiencing his wrath. And then, of course, there's another section of Scripture that we read about that has not yet happened. A Scripture that tells us that one day Jesus himself will ride back into this creation on a white horse and with a word he will do great destruction to sin and wickedness. And in that day, all sin will be purged from God's creation and things will be made new and right. Not gently, but with force. Jesus will have spent mercy after mercy upon the world and upon the creation, but there will be a time when judgment has finally come. Now we think about Christ and these examples of him showing force and showing violence. Due to his perfect judgment, Jesus has much more latitude to react in that way than we do. He knows what is best. He knows when enough is enough. But we must be slower to act. Look at Proverbs 14, 29, which is on the screen. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. We must be aware our understanding has limitations. Our perception is not always lined up perfectly with reality. We bring certain biases to our perceptions. We bring lack of experience to the table, lack of knowledge concerning another person's intentions. How am I supposed to know your heart and what you intended to do 100% of the time? I cannot. And so there are limitations to the way I see conflict and the way I try to unravel problems. Let that awareness of our limited understanding act as a kind of heat sink. Do you know what a heat sink is? On certain electronic equipment or, or mechanical engines, a heat sink is something that takes the heat caused by friction away from the device and stores it in itself so that the heat does not destroy the machine. That heat sink can be like our our awareness of, of our limitations. When we walk through this world humbly, knowing that we don't always know, then our first emotional reaction then should be absorbed by that knowledge, that humility that we don't have all understanding. We should delay our anger. We should delay our fury and wait until we've thought things through carefully because when we rush to respond according to our emotional anger, we will react as a fool. 2 Timothy 2, 40, 24 through 25 adds to this. It says, And the Lord's servant, if you want to be an elder, if you want to be a deacon, you are first and foremost asking to be a servant to the Lord God. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Look at a couple things in that passage that's on the screen for you there. Paul calls elders not just to be able to conquer. He calls them to be able to teach. Do you see that? There's a difference. For a godly leader, conflict is not an arena in which an intelligent man may flex his power against a lesser mind. It is an opportunity to influence another for their good. A violent man will not achieve this. A violent man may cause somebody's behavior to change, but he will not get to the heart of that man. A man's arrogance is sure to sabotage the mission of influencing hearts. Emotionally charged decisions are often the wrong decisions, friends. We cannot deny that God built men to be emotional creatures. His scripture tells us again and again to exercise our emotions. He says in Romans 12, to rejoice with those who rejoice. He tells us a couple of verses later, to weep with those who weep. We are told to be angry in Ephesians, but not to sin. We're told to fear the Lord. We are told to cry out in desperation through the Psalms when we have reached the end of our rope and we need Christ. So our emotions are not something to be ashamed of or discarded or numbed. Rather, our emotions should be managed with wisdom. 
Because every human has a sin nature, the emotions that we feel may in fact re reflect not wisdom, but the corruption within our own heart. Where does drug addiction come from? It comes from a heart that desires pleasure and relief. A heart that is scared to deal with reality. That desire, that emotional response is betraying the drug addict because it's causing them to go back again and again to something that is actually destroying them and deceiving them into thinking that it's helping them. Where does immoral behavior come from? It is fueled by inappropriate lusts that manifest themselves in our heart and make us see our fellow brother or sister in the wrong way. Violence comes from a fear. It comes from a fear that if I don't force my will, I'll never get what I want. So we've got to learn to be skeptical of our first emotional response. There is value in being able to make a quick decision. Time is not always a luxury that leaders have, but because the scripture warns us about the unreliability of our emotions, a good leader must slow himself down enough to let his sinful heart not overrule his thoughtful mind. Acts of violence, by the way, are usually a, a misappropriation of power. We studied 1 Peter chapter 5 a couple of weekends ago. And in that passage of scripture, we were called to be examples, not to be domineering over the flock. Do you remember those words? The elder, the deacon, must remember that they too remain sheep. So they cannot see themselves as this shepherd with a staff that can easily beat the sheep whenever it wants to. Rather, they should see themselves as fellow sheep who need to be led by the true good shepherd, Jesus Christ. The person who has a power advantage over another will be continually tempted to leverage that power into some kind of a personal gain. But Paul warns us in these passages that an elder and a deacon cannot serve for the purposes of serving themselves. When you ask to, to serve God as an elder or a deacon, you cannot be doing it because you want esteem or you want influence or you want to be able to make the church go the way you want it to be. Rather, you should be serving for the glory of the God who has called you to the position. I want us to think for a second of the words of the man who dangled from the cross directly to the left of Jesus. We know that when the Savior gave his life for us, he was not crucified alone. There were two criminals one on his left, one on his right. And we're told that the one on his left mocked him in those hours just before his death. He looked over to Jesus and basically said, if you're the son of God, if you're the king of the Jews, why don't you call upon God your father and have him use some of that power to get us down off these crosses? The man didn't believe he was the king of the Jews. He was a skeptic. And so he was expressing his fury at, at, at death that he was facing to Jesus Christ, saying, why don't you use that power if you're so mighty? We know the thief on the right side corrected the first thief and, and basically set him straight and professed faith. And Jesus said to that thief, surely I will see you in paradise today. But think again about that first thief and about his claim that Jesus should call down the power that was his to use for his own good. Jesus absolutely could have done just what the man was saying. No one in the history of the world has yielded more power than Jesus Christ could wield. With a word, he could have uncreated every human being that had spit on him or mocked him or struck him leading up to the cross. With a word, legions of angels, armies of perfect beings could come down and protect him and swoop to his aid. If he desired to protect himself, he could have done it. And that's the heart of man. When man has power, man uses power for his own good. But Jesus used his power for your good, sinner. He used his power so that you might be redeemed. He was willing to suffer in your place so that you would not spend eternity apart from God in hell. That act of love is more powerful than a thousand armies. Leadership is the ability to influence another person. The right kind of influence comes from a faithful display of undeniable truth, not from threats of personal harm. Church, if we were to elect a quarrelsome, 
quick-tempered, arrogant, or violent man to the office of elder or deacon, what would we be doing to the body of Christ? It would severely hinder the church's ability to be a unified body. When you have a leader who is constantly at odds with other people, who is constantly creating friction because they demand their own way, it would be very, very difficult to be a church that is unified the way God describes his church as needing to be. When someone is unwilling to see a brother's side or someone cannot enjoy a state of unified peace, they've always got to find something to bicker about or quarrel over, then they are going to undo the great work that so many other faithful people are trying to do. If you elect someone to office of elder or deacon who is violent or quarrelsome, and it's going to lead to strife within the leaders themselves. We're learning about how the, the New Testament model of, of church government is actually several elders in each church body. Elders that can serve as a team together so that you don't just have one mind barking out orders to everyone, but you have several minds following the Lord together, offering their opinions, their perspectives, their wisdom, working as a team. How's that team supposed to function well if there is one or more men on that team that demand their way all the time or who threaten other people on the team or who allow their emotions to overwhelm their intellect? It would break down the ability of that team of elders to do the job that God has called them to faithfully do. Violent or contentious leadership can also create a spirit of fear rather than a spirit of freedom among the church family. We don't want you to come to church thinking to yourself, do my, my leaders even desire my good? Do they care about me at all? We don't want you coming to church thinking, am I a beloved brother to my elders or am I just a resource? that is used to achieve these leaders' agenda. We don't want you to come to church thinking, are the overseers of the church humble in the pattern of God? If I follow him, am I even gonna be following Jesus? His life doesn't look like the life of Jesus. So we must be careful about the people we put in these positions, friends. There is a warning specifically for deacons that dovetails with this problem of being quarrelsome and arrogant. He who would fill the role of deacon, of servant leader in God's church, must not be double-tongued, and must not be slanderers. What a person does has got to correlate with what a person says. Now, to be double-tongued is to say one thing to someone over here and then go to somebody over here and say a very, very different thing. You might have heard of the phrase, this man talks out of both sides of his mouth. That's describing a double-tongued person. There is no consistency in the testimony of one who is double-tongued. Now this often stems from a, de a desire to be liked and accepted by all the people of the church. Often people who have a real driving desire to be approved of will speak to people in such a way that they're always trying to give them what they want to hear, even if what they want to hear is not what is true. When in reality, the opinion that should matter most to us is the opinion of our Lord God. What does God desire that we should say? The scripture makes it clear to us in Ephesians chapter four, if you'd like to turn there right now, that we, as we lead the church, as we equip the church to do the work of ministry in Ephesians chapter four, we are to speak the truth in love. These two concepts cannot be separated. We are not just to be a hammer, a sledgehammer of truth that comes in and destroys everything in our path. We are not just to be loving butterflies that float in and just give affection to everyone. We are to speak the truth and do it in love. And the balance of those two things reflects uh, the nature of our Lord God. Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4 is a really important chapter in the Bible that speaks to good, godly leadership. And those passages there are telling us that we just read that we, if we want to lead well and equip people to be mature disciples of Christ, we have got to speak the truth in love. A godly leader's story cannot be ever-changing. The leader who leads in a godly way is committed to telling the truth. Now, why is that important, particularly for a deacon? for a number of reasons. First of all, the deacon has got to work between those who have needs in the body of Christ and between the leadership who might be able to authorize resources to be used for the needs of those people in the body of Christ. 
They've got to be faithful liaisons. They're going to be dealing with very different groups of people. And so their testimony must be consistent from one person to the next or else you're going to get cross signals and people are going to be confused. A deacon is often called to help somebody out, not just to meet their physical needs, but to also meet their spiritual needs. A deacon is often involved with the mercy ministries of the church and he might see in a certain person who's attending the church a requirement for stewardship and for reform. So rather than just giving that person money to pay their electrical bill, they might need to sit down with that person and coach them about how to be more fiscally responsible so that the blessings God are giving to them might not be wasted so they don't find themselves in the same problem two months down the road. Now you can imagine that if somebody is is going into someone's home and teaching them to be wise and teaching them to do the right thing so that they might receive support from the church, then their testimony of what's going on in that house has got to be true when they report to the elders and, and they pray about this decision together as a team. They've got to be on the same page and a double-tongued person would undermine the unity of that team working together. By the way, a person who serves as a deacon is often exposed to much of the church's resources. There are benevolence funds and missions funds that they might be able to use and access and we've got to trust that men who are using the money of God are doing it in a, in a right way, in a way that is accountable, in a way that is honest. So a double-tongued man is more likely to be deceptive about the things that he is doing. We've got to be careful to put people in these positions that we can trust their word, that even outside of the church they have a reputation for telling the truth and being straightforward. Slandering is a close cousin to this first error of the mouth. When somebody slanders somebody else, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're speaking badly about somebody. Sometimes a person's behavior is bad, and to speak honestly about it, you've got to say how ugly it is. Our job is is not to paint someone in a a nice, perfect light to, to, to stoke their delicate egos. There are times when in order to be a loving brother, we've got to be honest with them. So slander is not just speaking about the bad things in a person's life. Slander is speaking about someone in a negative way when it's not true, when it's dishonest or it paints them in a negative light that is inaccurate. A deacon has got to care about justice and so honesty has got to govern his words. A deacon will become privy to a lot of sensitive information regarding the body of Christ. They're they're ministering to people on the ground floor level. Can he be trusted to handle that information with dignity and to be completely truthful regarding the things that he learns as he counsels and seeks to meet people's needs? It is important to note that a tendency to slander and or gossip about others can disqualify a man from serving as a deacon, not only if it is present in his own life, but also if it is present in his wife. This is a very important thing to understand. 1 Timothy 3.11, this will be on the screen for you. Speaking of deacons and their, their requirements, it says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. When a man and a woman become one in marriage, they are joined in some inseparable ways. And the ministry that God would call a man to will involve his wife, who is also a believer. So we must also consider the character of his companion when we consider the man for the role of deacon. Does this man have a wife that can be trusted to be quiet about the things that he, she prays about with her husband when, when she is supporting him in ministry and allowing him to go to the scene of something that is very difficult or sensitive? Is she going to be cautious about sharing that information with other people? Is she going to twist the facts around? Is she going to be a faithful testimony to what is actually happening? So deacons must not be slanderers. They must not be double-tongued. The next disqualifying trait that we got to consider from the list we mentioned earlier, the godly leader must not be a drunkard, must not be addicted to much wine. Let me give you two Old Testament passages here to give us an understanding of why this is important. Proverbs 31 speaks about the requirements of kings and the expectation of those who rule in a governmental way over the people of Israel. Verse 4 says, It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. What is Proverbs telling us in wisdom? That those who have a ruling capacity over others cannot afford to let themselves get drunk and have their 
intellectual capacity impaired because they are called upon to make important judgments that will affect the lives of many, often the lives of the weak. Leviticus 10 is a passage of scripture that addresses those who are to serve in the ministry. And the Lord spoke to Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses and Aaron began the priestly line of the Levites. And so he's speaking to the first of the priestly line saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now let me admit first and foremost that pastors and deacons are neither kings nor priests. That's not their function. But they are leaders among God's people. Just as prophets, priests, and kings served as leaders in the Old Testament economy, Deacons and elders are to lead in the New Testament economy. They are to offer insight and wisdom and to guide and direct God's people. A minister to the flock will make a hazard of himself if he is letting his mind be intoxicated by drink or by drug. Now, consuming alcohol, friends, is not a sinful thing itself. This should be clear to us by the fact that the sacrament of communion calls for two symbolic elements, right? The bread, which is symbolic of the body of Jesus Christ, and the cup, which for hundreds of years was wine, symbolic of the blood of Christ. Now, we've made the decision to use unfermented grape juice because we want to be sensitive to those who are trying to kick alcohol addiction. So we don't use wine, but it's a perfectly good thing to use, and many churches do that. And why would Jesus call us to drink the wine and eat the bread if all alcohol consumption was wicked? He wouldn't. We also see that his first miracle in, uh, in Canaan was to turn water into wine at a wedding ceremony, wasn't it? Then later on, we see Paul, the apostle, instructing Timothy in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy to drink a little wine to help with a stomach problem that he had. So drinking alcohol is not a sin in and of itself. Forbidding alcohol instru- uh, consumption is like adding to God's law, which is exactly the mistake the Pharisees were often guilty of. Consumption of alcohol is not wrong, but drunkenness. Drinking to the point where you're beginning to become intellectually impaired is sin in the eyes of God. Ephesians 5, verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. God wants our joy and our lightheartedness to come not from a bottle, but from the truth that he has filled us with his very presence and has given us a reason for living hope. A person who drinks alcohol or consumes any kind of recreational drug to the point that it begins to change the way they make decisions has crossed the line into drunkenness. And no, there's not like a little flag that pops out of your head when you've suddenly drunk too much so you know you've crossed the line. It's a gray area, isn't it? And, and so I would urge you as believers to err on the side of caution. If you're buzzed, that probably means you're starting to think a little bit differently than you did before. So it doesn't mean you're throwing up in the hallways and blacking out to necessarily be drunk. When these drinks or these drugs begin to affect the way that you think about life, you are inviting the enemy to deceive you. You are letting go of some of the very small capacity for understanding that you've been given. Because we struggle against a sinfully, naturally sinful heart in our sober state, we don't make the best decisions, do we? When we partake of a chemical that takes what little sensibility that we have and compromises it, we become even more prone to wander than if we were sober. If you cannot legally operate a motor vehicle in in this land when you're under the influence of alcohol, what makes you think you can do a good job leading the church of God when you regularly come to the state of, of drunkenness? Now, a potential elder might counter by saying, well, I don't drink when I'm working. I never drink on Sundays. I I don't drink when I'm supposed to be shepherding the people. But if you are a shepherd, if you are an elder or a deacon, you are always working. There is not a time in your life when you could say, God can't use me right now. I'm on my time. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 2 says, I charge you, this is Paul speaking to his young protege, Timothy, who is also an elder at the church of Ephesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience 
and teaching. What does it mean to be ready in season and out of season? That means that ministry is gonna sneak up on you sometimes. You're gonna be in bed at two in the morning and the phone's gonna ring and someone's passed away. You're gonna have somebody, you're gonna be on vacation and somebody's gonna say, pastor, I feel suicidal. What do I do? And you don't say, well, I'll talk to you when I get back home. You let the Lord use you in that moment. Heaven forbid you're halfway through a bottle of wine and you can't think real straight and your church member is asking you for wisdom and advice. The church leader cannot afford to think, well, I drink on my time, but when I'm doing God's work, then I stay sober-minded. Serving as a leader in God's church is not just a job or a role, it's a part of one's identity. You must always be ready at the ring of a telephone to be by someone's side, to counsel them in wisdom, to help them resolve conflict or to accurately explain doctrine to them. So the men that we put in positions of leadership should not be men who are known for their drinking, often seen down at the bar, hanging out with the drunkards. Men who are given to drink too much and who may shame the God they represent and the church that they help shepherd in the time of being clouded by drinking or by drugs. And then finally, one more admonition. A faithful leader must not be a lover of money or greedy for financial gain. This is the last of the disqualifying characteristics. Now we spent a significant amount of time addressing this when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 5 two weeks ago. We were told that an elder should not shepherd for selfish gain, but should rather shepherd eagerly for, for the very honor of being able to help the Lord God and to do something useful for him. So let me just add only a few little details to this category. I want you to ask yourself, would a man rob from God? Would we put someone in a position where they would have access to the things that have been given to the mission. If a man does not govern his own finances right and you put him in a position where he has access to the church's money, then you are setting that man up for destruction. And God is not gonna take it lightly when somebody misuses his funds in the church. I wanna remind us of a very shocking scene that we read of in Acts chapter five. It was the very early stages of the church. The church is beginning to really boom in Jerusalem. And many people in the church are so intent on the gospel going out into the world that those who have vast riches are selling off many of their assets and giving it to the mission. They want to support the spread of the gospel. And so they're financing these missionaries to go out and preach the word from town to town and teach the truth that Jesus had taught to them. It wasn't a requirement. It was an act of love from those whom God had blessed richly. And a, and a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira see others doing this, and they're impressed by that. And so they own a field, and they go and they sell this field. Totally voluntary, it was not required of them. They sell the field. And then they come into the presence of the leadership of the church, and they declare before everyone, we have sold this field, and we want to give the full sum of its sale to the furtherance of the gospel. One problem. They didn't give the full amount to the furtherance of the gospel. They had the kind of heart that is greedy for money and desires to be pleasing to other men at the same time. So they sold their field and they give a portion to the church, which is noble and fine. And if they would have just said that, it would have been no problem at all. But then they went forward and they were double-tongued. They bore a false testimony of their own actions and declared that they had given it all so that others would look at them as spiritual heroes, would think highly of their, of their uh, maturity and their generosity. What they didn't realize was that those who were leading the church were made aware of this by the Lord God. The Holy Spirit made it clear to them. And you might remember reading in chapter five that as one by one they were brought forward and given a chance to confess what they had done, both of them lied about it. Both of them tried to conceal their greed for money. And how did Peter respond to them? He said, you have not lied to man, but to the Holy Spirit of God. These men lied to God himself. When we give money to the Lord, it doesn't belong to us anymore. It's not our money. It is the Lord's money. It is his to use however he wants. And when people with less than good morals come into the church and want to lead and they begin to put their hands into that pot and take it for things that they want for themselves or skim off the top like an old tax collector would have done in, in the New Testament, then God is not going to stand for that and he's not going to bless that church. Money should not be that important to us, but the way that we handle our money 
will be an honest indicator of what actually is important to us. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The man who does not handle his own finances well is not fit to serve as a leader over God's people. Does he spend extravagantly on worthless things? Is he constantly making bad investments or getting himself into debt, buying things that he wants even though he cannot afford them? Is, are the burdens of his timeshare and his boat and all these things keeping him from being able to use his resources for the good of God? If so, this is not a man who should be trusted with the resources of God's church. And when we think about these disqualifying traits, we have to take into consideration the fact that there are, are no perfect men in our churches. There are no men, if we read these lists of qualifications and disqualifiers, who would say without a shadow of a doubt that they have never committed any of these sins. Many of our best leaders will be men who in their life before Christ committed many of these sins. They, could, they cannot be held accountable to their actions truly before they receive the Holy Spirit because it is only by the Spirit of Jesus Christ that we can walk in the truth and do what is right. So we can't say, well, you used to be a man who was foolish with his money, so we can't let you serve now. We can't say, well, you have a history of being violent before, before you were involved with Christ, so you're disqualified. Rather, we should look at a man's track record after they have come to Jesus. If somebody who is currently serving in the church commits an error that we have talked about, one of these disqualifying traits, then it is up to the other elders and the church body to examine that man's heart, to confront him as the scripture tells us, and to see if that man repents willingly and openly and desires to walk in the right way that he's called to walk. If he does not, then we must not hesitate to remove that person from office of leadership in the church. The sanctity of the offices of elder and deacon are bigger than the rights of individuals who are serving in those offices. So we've got to be careful to err on the conservative side when it comes to putting someone in the church office or allowing them to continue in it. We've got to protect the sanctity of God's church. The man who wants to serve the Lord God and meets the requirements of God can only do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. It has been a really difficult few weeks teaching these things to you because each, each day that I spend in the Word studying this and preparing this, it is like looking into a mirror and seeing every one of my own flaws broadcast before my own eyes. We have no perfect men in the church and so you will not be able to find that flawless individual who serves without ever making a mistake or without ever losing his temper or without ever doing the wrong thing. But let us as a church pray that the Lord God would guide us to those men who even though they fail from time to time have hearts that are tuned to sing God's praise have a humble, meek desire to grow and to learn and will live honestly before not only their God, but the church to whom they are accountable.